want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 7 with me this morning. John chapter 7. If you have a bulletin, there's a place for you to take some notes in the back if you'd like to. We have a very short passage when you compare it to the size and scope of this particular chapter. John chapter 7, as I want to use this passage to set us up for communion this morning. But by way of introduction, as you're turning to John 7, which I'm going to read in just a a couple of minutes for us, we're just going to look at verses 45 down to verse 52. But I want you to think about something. If, If the saying is that death and taxes are inevitable for everybody, which I think we all agree with, I mean, there's a reason why the world has some of these cliches, then the other part that's true in life is religion and politics are the two subjects we're not supposed to talk about. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that because all too often, if you engage in a discussion of religion or politics, they'll divide us rather than unite us. But the irony is, in a 21st century world, that almost anyone who is religious or political is always talking about unity, uniting, and unifying humanity. And that's what I always find funny and tragically ironic. Because you're not supposed to talk about it, and yet we do talk about it in the hopes of finding unity. And you'll notice that my title for this morning is rather odd, because my title is Christ, the Divine Divider. Christ the divine divider. And as we head into a fall season, can you believe it? It's September. All right? Now, some of you as parents might be going, it's Christmas in September because finally the kids are going back to school. I don't know where you're at. I just feel like I blinked and we just had some warm weather. And I don't want to blink again because I'm not anxious for cold weather again. All right? I'm asking the Lord to help me be thankful no matter what the weather is like. But we're heading into a fall season. We're in the first Sunday of September. We're going to be celebrating and observing and sharing together around the Lord's table. And my title is Jesus Christ, the Divine Divider. Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus is divine. But also make no mistake about it. Jesus does divide. Let's just be honest. You'll find people in this world today love Jesus and, let's be honest, hate Him. In fact, you'll find very little in between. They want to know about Him or they want to know nothing about Him. And the funny thing is is that the Bible itself tells us that this is what Jesus is going to do. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a parable and talks about dividing the wheat from the tares. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives another parable and talks about a shepherd who will come and with the humanity of the ages and divide them as sheep from goats. Jesus tells us that he will be a dividing subject matter. Now, without a doubt, Jesus is what Isaiah the prophet said he would be. And this is a passage of Scripture we often read at Christmas time. But in Isaiah 9, the prophet says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And he sums it up with the zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll do this. And then there's passages like that remind us that Jesus is our Savior and our Healer and Redeemer. And you see glimpses of this even in the Old Testament. One of my favorite Psalms is the beginning of Psalm 18, where David has finally been put on the throne, and this is how he summarizes his life. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God. My rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. And I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. This is the divine Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful. He's so kind and gentle. Remember in Matthew 11... Jesus says to his, all those that are listening, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now why does he extend that? Because he says, I am meek and gentle and I'm lowly and I'm kind. Oh, the, the divine Jesus. I, I want to ask like, like that wonderful pastor from the south, uh, S.M. Godridge, who said, Do you know him? That's my king. Do you know him? This is the Savior. Paul reminds us that in Philippians, one day, Jesus will be worshipped and submitted to on a worldwide scale. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, now listen, every knee, not, not some knees or most knees, but every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get a witness? All right, that was a lousy witness, but we'll start. Got to wake you people up this morning. And so this is the wonderful divine Jesus. But my role, if I'm going to be honest, is to also show you what else is in the Bible. Jesus also tells us that In his word, he divides. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said these words that I don't think we like to read very much. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household These are shocking words from Jesus. Whoever, he goes on and says, loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Our intern David Drover preached this passage from Mark. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And that's the context of this verse that many of us know. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. But perhaps the greatest verse in all of the Bible about the divine Jesus, who was also the divider, is found in Hebrews 4. When the writer said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What rest? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he tells you, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, look at this, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you know why I firmly believe it's so hard for us as humans to regularly and faithfully read the Bible? Is because reading the Bible either draws you to Jesus or it will drive you from Him. Because you know when you read it, it's like it's looking into your soul. You cannot do it and not have the Bible just feel like, is there someone in the room, even if you're alone? That's because the Bible's alive. And notice he says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, I will tell you, make sure if you read Hebrews 4, keep reading, because then next comes that we don't have a high priest that doesn't know how we fail but was tempted in all points as ye are, we are yet without sin. So therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. But this is what should motivate you. You see, Jesus is amazing. Friends, he's more than amazing, but Jesus is also divine and he tells the truth. He tells the truth about the world. He tells the truth about sin, yours and mine. He tells the truth about suffering and pain. Often, we all experience suffering and pain, and yet everybody tries to help us, but few people ever tell us the truth. He tells us the truth about who we are, what we really need, and what only He can do. Yet he promises in truthfulness to tell us that he would save us and that he would change us and that he would redeem us and transform us. And ready, he would heal you and restore you and give you meaning and purpose. And God promises to give you value and hope and he offers us forgiveness and mercy and grace. And today, oh church, listen to me. We need to see this reality and truth played out before us in some of the most powerful illustrations found in the Word of God. And you see this in John chapter 7. And as we come to the end of it in verses 45 to 52, then next week by way of previews of coming attractions, if I can give you a commercial, next Sunday I will preach categorically my favorite passage of Scripture when we deal with the woman caught in adultery. And I pray that you will pray for me as I am so eagerly anticipating the opportunity to preach it because bar none, this is my favorite passage in the Bible. But for today, we're at the end of chapter 7. And I want you to understand how John breaks up his gospel because he introduces the gospel of John in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. And then you have a period of consideration in the end from all of chapter 1 in through the end of chapter 4 where people are considering Jesus. Then in chapters 5 and 6, you have what's called the period of controversy. That's where Jesus does controversial things. 
He heals on the Sabbath. He speaks. He has just spoken to a Samaritan woman. He's doing these things. He heals this paralyzed man. He heals a nobleman's son who very well could have been a Gentile. But now when you get into John chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all the way through to chapter 11, we have what is called the period of conflict. And you see this. In chapter 7, things have just been ratcheting up. And then finally, in chapter 12 through chapter 17, we have the period of conference where Jesus conferences with his disciples very intently. Then he finishes with the passion where we look at the arrest and the trials and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is often called the period of consummation. Jesus does what he says he was going to do. And then John ends with chapter 21, which is his conclusion. But here in John chapter 7, we're smack dab in the middle of conflict and division. And it began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 7 with a private conversation between Jesus and his step-siblings. And as you learn, his step-siblings did not believe in him. If you want to see division in a family, look no further than Jesus and his family before he goes to the cross. They didn't believe in him. In fact, they mocked him. They goaded him. They did the things that I have seen siblings do to one another. And yet, then you have this very public conversation through the rest of chapter 7. But when you come to verses 45 to 52, you have another private conversation. And you see all through this chapter that Jesus is dividing people. He's dividing them. And I don't know about you, but I, I sit there reading my Bible. I'm like, Lord, why, why are you so divisive? In a 21st century world where we want to be unified and we want peace, and we, why does it seem that the God of peace is a Jesus who divides? And, and the truth of it is, you just got to look at what he claims. Like, let's be honest. Whether you're in the 1st century or the 21st century, Jesus' claims are still up for debate. I mean, let's be honest, he claimed to be God in the flesh. You're either going to believe that, or your alternative is, you're crazy. I mean, you either have to own that or not own it. There is no middle ground. You can't walk through life and go, well, maybe he's God, or maybe he isn't. I think that's crazier than believing he is. You either believe he is or you don't believe he is. This is what he claimed to be. He claimed to be sent from God for a purpose. Jesus told people to be born again. Even Nicodemus had a hard time with this in John chapter 3. He told them not only to be born again, but then he went so far as to say, you need to confess your sins and follow him. In fact, we're going to see it next week. He not only tells you to confess your sins and repent of your sin, he has the gall to look at you and say, stop sinning. <laughs> Remember next week, he'll say to this woman, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. He said you had to trust in him for forgiveness and then follow him by forgiving others the way he forgives you. He told us to stop living for the world and instead live for eternity. He told us we could stop pretending. I don't, I don't know about you, but do you ever get tired of pretending? Do you ever take stock of how often you lie every day 
just by letting people know or think that you're okay when you're not. Whether you don't want to admit you're struggling or whether you're afraid of being stereotyped that when someone asks you how you're doing, you're the person that gives them the 20-minute answer. And by the smiles on your faces, you know you've wrestled with this. But how often do we get asked, how you doing? Fine, best kind, bye. Best kind. How's she cutting? Fair to Midland. For all of our visitors, welcome to Newfoundland. This is our world. But Jesus says, stop pretending. Jesus says, stop competing. Stop trying to keep up with each other. To own the coolest gadgets. Do you realize that there's a website called Mac Rumors where you can go just to find out when the new Mac stuff will be released? So you can make a decision about when you're going to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars more on a gadget that will work a fraction of a second faster than the gadget you paid a hundred or thousands of dollars for now. But if you want to be cool, you got to have the latest Apple gadget. I'm telling you, man, Apple figured it out. It's a church. And I'm an Apple guy. This is what he says. He says, stop competing. And then he says, stop fearing. Stop being afraid. Oh, that I wish that I could help you and all of my family and my friends understand how Jesus comes and says, if you will trust me, you get to stop being afraid. Because for all of the debates about what's gone wrong in the 21st century, I will tell you that the thing I find most permeating the world is fear. Interestingly, Paul, who's preaching through the book of Joshua, do you know that the number one command of Scripture is fear not? That phrase is used more than any other phrase in the Bible. Fear not. Stop being afraid. Stop pretending. He says that we can lay down our life and yet gain. That's divisive. That we can put others ahead of ourselves and yet gain a sense of purpose and victory. And this is why John writes what he does at the end of his gospel when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the result of that belief. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let me ask you, if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, are you living today like you actually have life? Or are you simply hanging on, hoping to get through life? Jesus said that by believing in Him, you and I can have life. We can have meaning and power and purpose. I mean, have you ever met someone who's truly been forgiven, set free, empowered? I got to go to Scotland last year in February, last February. And I I went to see how a group over there that I've modeled a lot of Mile One Mission after, and it's called 20 Schemes. And I went into this church that I prayed for this morning, Nidri Community Church. And I walked in there for the first time, and this guy, his name um, was William. And William was just, uh, sorry, Graham. Graham was just pushing a broom. And I wanted to be nice. I wanted to make a first impression. You know, you're a pastor from Newfoundland, Canada. You've just gone back to the mother country, and you want to let them all know that you know where you came from, and you're thankful. And so I walked in there, and uh, Graham happened to look over his shoulder, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm Pastor Steve Bray. 
No, actually, I said, hey, I'm Steve. I didn't say Pastor Steve Ray. I said, hey, I'm Steve. And, and Graham stopped with the broman. Hey, Steve, how you doing? I'm Graham. Are you saved? Like, like that's exactly how the conversation went. And, and, and of course, I, I went back and I said, oh, Graham, thank, nice to meet you. I'm a pastor. I don't care that you're a pastor. Are you saved? I mean, Graham had found Jesus. He was a hopeless alcoholic and drug addict who sold drugs and abused things. And God had rescued him and been forgiven and set free and empowered and indwelt by the gospel of Jesus. Have you met people like that? Do you realize that most of you sitting here are supposed to be people like that? Because maybe you might say, well, Pastor Steve, I'm not an alcoholic or a drug addict. No, but you're addicted to your sin. And Jesus saved you. You had to be rescued maybe from your middle-classness, your self-sufficiency. This is what Jesus does. When you meet someone who's been forgiven, it's someone who doesn't fear death but loves life. Have you met someone like that? Someone who isn't intimidated by people or opinions, yet is gracious and approachable and peace-seeking. Someone who is humble and yet confident. Someone who knows what it means to admit failure and not be ashamed. Someone who has stopped clinging to the here and now and now clings to the hereafter. Someone who's not a slave to their past or to peer pressure, but they're not arrogant or proud. They are servants. They are kind and gentle. They're not argumentative. They're not jockeying for power or position. Friends, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he offers you and me, and that's divine. It's love and grace and redemption. But you need to realize it is divisive because you'll either believe this or you'll deny it. You'll see it in its full display in our passage here in John 7. So let me read this to you. And this is after this Feast of Booths. And so I want you to sit back and listen. Because here you are. You get to be observers. You get to be a fly on the wall. And you get to sit in and see the mind and soul of people. People like you and me. And you'll see what makes Jesus so amazing. And yet what makes him so amazingly divisive. Hear the word of the Lord. John 7 Verse 45, the officers, that is the temple police, in John 7, 45, then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, so as soon as these guys show up, they don't even wait for them to talk. As soon as they show up, they go, why did you not bring him? Now hang on to that, all right? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this. Man, no one, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Of course not. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, these chief priests and Pharisees, does our law judge a man before first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, 
Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's so much here as we come to the table of the Lord. I want you, if you take notes here, let me break this down very quickly and we'll walk through this. Number one, notice Jesus' amazing authority. Jesus' amazing authority. I love the Gospel of John. John is a skillful writer and he weaves irony and humor and sarcasm and suspense because verse 45 picks up the scene that started all the way back in verse 32. If you look at John 7, 32, this is when Jesus is creating this commotion and everyone's talking about him. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests dispatch a group of temple police and they say, go get him. Go get him, arrest him. But verse 44 gives us the outcome. Because you'll notice in verse 44 it says, Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So stepping back, you'll notice that actually likely a couple of days has elapsed from the order to go get Jesus to their report of their failure to get Jesus. And as one commentator says, it seems highly probable that the officers had a general commission. In other words, they were given a warrant for his arrest, and they were to look for an opportunity to get him. But here's the thing. For two days, three days, they didn't get an opportunity. Verse 44 tells us that again. And that's been a theme in John. All the way back in chapter 5, we find out that the religious crowd wanted Jesus silent. They looked for ways to persecute him, to arrest him, to stop him. They didn't want him talking. And was it because he was disorderly? Was it because he was hurting people? No. You know why they wanted him silenced? Because he was actually telling people the truth. And yet he loved them. He healed and spent time with all walks of life. If you read any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus spends time with men and women, young and old, rich and poor. He, he got down and dirty with the blue collar, and he got uptight and snooty with the white collar. He dealt well with the educated and the uneducated. Jesus was there speaking the truth, telling folks what was true about them and about life and about the world. And Jen, think about all the signs he's performed. He rescued a wedding and a wedding host from embarrassment when he filled these pots of purification water with the greatest wine people had ever drunk in their life. He touched the life of a Samaritan woman that nobody would talk to. He healed a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He fed 5,000 plus men, women, and children, and then he walked on water and rescued his own disciples. But oh my goodness, religion said he broke their rules. Because he healed on the Sabbath. And he frolicked with Samaritans and he touched the unclean. Jesus was guilty of soiling himself and telling others that ritual and form won't save you or change you or help you face the reality of life. Have you not experienced this? I grew up in in a, in a very conservative church, but one of the things I learned is that when life goes terribly bad, if you don't know Jesus, simply form helps you in no way. And so they hated him. And what's amazing is like that verse in 44 and back in verse 30, we're told that they could not take him because his hour had not come. 
You see, these temple officers are sent out. They're commissioned to actually an impossible task. God had sent Jesus to accomplish the will of the Trinity. And folks, God's will can never be stopped. You need to know that. If it's God's will, you and I, or all of us together, or the world, or presidents, or dictators, or despots, or Satan, will not stop the will of God. So Jesus' life is to help us so in fulfillment what Joseph learned and testified about back in Genesis. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so the leadership, these chief priests and Pharisees, demand an explanation. And I don't think they ever thought they'd get the answer that they got. Look at verse 45 again. They're told the temple police come back to report, but before they can even start, this leadership says, why have you not brought him? Now, again, John tells us that it's chief priests and Pharisees. Now, read between the lines. These two groups were very different groups. They did not like each other. Okay? The priests bickered and jockeyed for position and competed against the Pharisees for power, for the love of the people. And yet, because they all hated Jesus, they had a common enemy because they saw him as a common threat. So they joined forces and they demand, why didn't you bring him to us? And I think that's hilarious. I love the humor here. They're acting so authoritative. They're acting so in charge. And yet they're actually afraid. In fact, Matthew would tell us in Matthew 21 that these same Pharisees and chief priests feared the people. And folks, is that not the same today? Whether it's politicians or actors, companies or corporations, it's the fear that the mob rules the day in the 21st century. Just watch social media. If a tweet goes viral or a viral video goes viral, or there's a viral post, and then there's viral photos on Instagram. It's all very aptly named because it is a virus. It's the virus of popular opinion rather than truth and right. This is the story of our world. But notice what these temple guards say in verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. Seven words. Seven words words. And they sum up the divinity of Jesus. This cohort of officers, for two or three days, they've watched and listened to Jesus. Maybe at the beginning they were looking for their chance to arrest him, but you'll notice it wasn't the crowd that stopped him. It wasn't the politics of the day that stopped these officers. It wasn't the fear of Rome nor Jewish religion. It was the words of Jesus. You see, the crowd talked about how Jesus spoke in Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Luke 4.22 talks about the grace of Jesus' words. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? When Jesus rescued the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and calmed the storm in Matthew 8, the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, these officers of the law, when they heard what they heard, 
or how it was they heard it, they couldn't bring themselves to arrest him because they felt the power of the Lord's words. They had never heard any man speak like this before. It tied their hands and made them feel incapable of doing anything against him. And don't forget, that's a common theme. Later on in John 18, when we hear about how these same temple guards are collected by Judas to go and arrest Jesus, and it says, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, maybe some of these men, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus said to them, I am He, Judas who betrayed him was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, notice, they drew back and fell to the ground. This was the kind of words that Jesus spoke. Oh, the common folks were impressed with him. The disciples were amazed by him. Matthew tells us that demons trembled at his words. Mark tells us that nature submitted to his word. God twice in Matthew 4 and Matthew 18 spoke from heaven and declared to the world that they are to listen to the words of Jesus. And the crowds wondered. But what did religion do? They questioned him, tried to entrap him, accused him, argued with him. Even Nicodemus back in John 3 would cry out to the words, How can these things be? So my friends in church this morning, humanity, nature, the spiritual realm, all see Jesus as divine, but he is also the great divider because religion would not accept him. They could not submit to him, and they dared not admit to him that he was God in the flesh. And so, number two, look at verse 47, religion's amazing arrogance. They basically look at these officers in verse 47 and say, you fools. Have you been deceived by a fraud? J.C. Ryle says the word rendered deceived means literally led astray or caused to error. Have you been carried off by this new teaching, they said? The question implies anger, sarcasm, ridicule, and displeasure. But what would you do? What would you do if masses of people were walking miles and risking hunger and taking chances just to glimpse or see or talk or encounter Jesus? What would you do if people were being healed and lives changed and sinners coming to repentance and even the rank and file temple police are here now telling you no one ever spoke like this? Their response was ridicule. They have a posture of shame. Shame on you for believing this stuff. Shame on you for not looking to those who are educated and upstanding and enlightened. Look at verse 48 again. They ask what is obviously a rhetorical question. Has anybody from the Pharisees or religious leaders believed this stuff? And then look at the shame of condescension in verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I mean... You're getting a window into the soul of intentions of human beings here, folks. These chief priests and Pharisees, these were the men charged with loving people and leading them and praying for them and representing them before God. And yet we find out they actually despised these people. They used them. They belittled them. They didn't care about human beings at all. They loved power and money and position and respect. 
The crowd was simply a means to an end. Nothing more, nothing less. And you can read it because one rabbi in the first century said, no one from the common people can be pious. And that's why Peter told his audience in 1 Peter to beware and watch out because Satan is like a roaring lion that seeks whom he may devour. Folks, listen to me this morning. Sin uses you. Sin lies to you. The world and its temptations does this every day. Every beer commercial makes it seem that if you just crack one, instantly you're in shape and every good-looking girl in the world just shows up and wants to party with you. That's every bear commercial ever made. Or it's a group of reptiles going, what's up? I mean, that's the bear commercial. Every furniture commercial, every clothing commercial, everything, the world markets itself. Just buy this car. You'll be cool. Own this home. You'll have meaning in life. Own that fridge with a television in it that makes water and ice. And if you turn around, we'll massage your shoulders while you drink that water and ice. This is the world. It tempts you to think, go into debt, spend money, have now, pay later. Do you realize that is sin? Have now, pay later. And yet here religion said they were simply incompetent religious leaders following incompetent religious folks. And then I find it fascinating because the rhetorical question of verse 48 and 49 gets an answer in verse 50 because then you see a searcher's amazing insight. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, an insider. Our verse goes on and out of its way to tell us that he was one of them. And he admits to all in attendance, I am a searcher. Nicodemus went from challenger of Jesus back in John 3 to defender of him in John 7. And look at what he asks. Does our law judge a man first without giving him a hearing and learning? Some of your translations might even have an understanding what he does. Now, there is the obvious calling out here. Nicodemus is saying, look, we're the legal experts of the law, and we're not doing what the law tells us. Because in both Judaism and in Roman law, the law required at least two witnesses and a hearing of the accused before any type of conviction could be considered, and sometimes even before arrest could be considered. But notice that phrase, learning what he does. Or understanding. Again, John's irony and sense of humor is on display. They don't understand the law, the word of God. And they're looking at them and going, you're negligent. And then Nicodemus says, but you're negligent because you don't understand Jesus, the word of God. This is what Nicodemus goes. Talk about a mic drop. Nicodemus just stands up and goes, excuse me, we're the experts? And we're not doing what the law says. And he's the word of God. And we're not even listening to him. Now what you need to realize is how badly this would have stung. Because this is coming from Nicodemus, one of their own. Tradition tells us he was from a powerful, famous family. One of the early traditions believes that Nicodemus' dad or grandfather was a general from the Hasmonean period during the time of the Jewish revolts and independence. So he wasn't someone to be snickered at, but look finally at religion's amazing ignorance. Look at verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see what they did? Shame. They went right to shame. Attack and the most amazing challenge I think we see in Scripture. Because right away you see that these men have not experienced Jesus like Nicodemus has. They mock this teacher of the law, one of their own from a famous family. And they go, are you from Galilee too? And that was meant to embarrass him. Quite frankly, if you're from Newfoundland and you've traveled on the mainland, maybe you've experienced that. Sometimes I've had people walk up to me like I'm a wind-up doll. Speak Newfie to me, you know? Or they, they walk up and assume that I know every Newfoundland joke ever written. Or they walk up and they, I remember this, I was at a grocery store in Nova Scotia and somebody picked up on my accent and uh, this lady looks up and she goes, are you from Newfoundland? And I said, yes. Do you know the Brown family? As if we know all 550,000 people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And in a moment of not being very uh, spiritual, I went, yes, the Brown family. Had a barbecue with them last week. And she bought right into it. And I had her going for about 10 minutes. And finally I said, honey, I have no idea who you're talking about. I I have known what it is to almost be, be belittled because I'm from Newfoundland. These leaders are trying to belittle Nicodemus. They're trying to shut him up. And this was meant to put him on the defensive. It was meant to shut him up. It was meant to stereotype him. And that's a common practice we see today. We see it everywhere today. No one wants to actually engage in dialogue. And if you talk to someone or you ask them a question, now instead of dealing with that, they try to embarrass you by labeling you with the most egregious caricature they can. So you just feel like, I can't do anything. And that's all meant to just stop discussion. And how they show their arrogance. And they say, search the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee. Now it could be that they meant to say that the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. But this is ironic because, in case you know, Jonah the prophet comes from Galilee. Nahum the prophet comes from Galilee. And Elijah the prophet comes from Galilee. Whom people in Jesus' day had said, Jesus was the coming again of Elijah. And notice, they want him to search the Scriptures so he can not find something. And that's the problem with the world today. People tell you to go to the Bible to not find something. And yet the Bible tells us to knock and ask and search so that the Word of God can be opened and give you answers and show us where and how to live. And the tragedy is that most of these men in this scene, most of them would die in their sins. And yet Jesus, six months later, would die for them. And on the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And church, this is the difference between Nicodemus and these leaders. Understanding. See, Nicodemus took his questions and his doubts and his suspicions, his confusion, his anxiety, his hurts, and his sin to Jesus. Jesus took his ignorance to Jesus, and then he experienced Jesus, and then he had his conscience quickened to God. In the end, Nicodemus makes a full break with religious pride and stubborn, self-sufficient unbelief. And later, from the shadow of the cross, Nicodemus would understand fully and embrace completely, you must be born again. And herein is the lesson as we come to the table of the Lord. And I want to ask my elders if they would come forward. J.D. Greer writes this. 
being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. Having its truth captivate your soul is quite another. And I want you to think about that as we come to the table of the Lord. Because for all of you here that are friends or visitors, I have a very important question. Have you come to Jesus, the divine Savior of the world today? Have you? Again, remember Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to ask you this morning, young and old, do you believe that? Have you experienced this? As we come to the table of the Lord, will you trust Jesus to do it, and will you trust Him with the outcome of Him doing it? Because guys, we can't separate Jesus from the Word of God. To know Jesus is to know His Word. It's to trust His Word. It's to follow His Word. If you're going to enjoy the table of the Lord, and it's going to be something more than just a ritual or some sort of sacrament that we just do on the first Sunday of every month, you've got to realize to do this is to have your sins forgiven, but it means to repent of them, which is what we're going to look at next week. It's to be transformed. Remember the Samaritan woman? Come meet the man who told me all that I ever did, but he loves me. He will forgive me, and he shows me a better way. Let me challenge you this morning as we come to the table of the Lord from Isaiah the prophet again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Will you be divinely united to Jesus today, or will the divinity of Jesus divide you from him? And folks, this is your choice. And Christian, as we celebrate the table of the Lord, are you clinging to Jesus through his word and in prayer today? Like Nicodemus, will you trust Jesus no matter what it means to you personally? Can you and will you forgive as Christ has forgiven you? Can you and will you stand for truth, even if it means you'll be mocked or misunderstood or marginalized or experience setback? John is asking us to believe in Jesus. Then we're called to feast on him and depend on him and learn from him. And church, listen to me. Jesus told us how to live, what to hope and live for. 